to two scriptures as we start this morning. Luke chapter 22 and Hebrews chapter 8. And I want to, um, I just want to talk to you about this question. Are you a bad Christian? Luke 22 and then Hebrews chapter 8. Thank you for being here today. I just come this morning just to bless you in the name of Jesus. Just to encourage you in the Lord. Strengthen you and prayerfully strengthen your faith in Jesus. In Luke 22, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And he is in a time of great sorrow. And he is praying and he is seeking the Lord. And he is going through what is called his agony. And he says this um, as we come into this time of prayer. I'm going to begin in verse 39. And he came out and he went. And as he went to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast. And kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer... And was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. In Hebrews chapter 8, the new covenant is described here in this beautiful passage. And I'm going to begin in verse 8. It says, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days come, saith the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts and they... And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. I want to highlight, if I can, two verses for you. In Luke twenty-two forty-five, I read this verse to highlight for you. When he arose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And in Hebrews chapter 8, he tells us in verse 12, For I will be merciful... To their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, while I remember no more. 
And I wanted to talk to you about these two things. So I have, um, I've, I've been raised in the church. So I've been in church since I was born. And I don't know how many sermons I've heard, how many sermons that I don't remember, and some I do. I don't recall ever hearing a sermon on Luke twenty two forty five. 45. Um, in regard to this, I've certainly heard messages about the disciples not being able to pray for an hour. Um, and usually it's very convicting to give us a motivation to maybe pray. But I never heard it in this light, but this is the way I guess my spirit has been uh, moved over the past few weeks in regards to this scripture. Because it says that the reason the disciples did not pray or did not stay awake and pray is because they fell asleep for sorrow. And I was, I was just kind of captivated by that, that they were sleeping because of sorrow. So I was just praying and just trying to understand what that meant. You know, uh, I know the record through the Gospels tells us that there was a couple of times that Jesus came to the disciples when he asked them to pray and they had fallen asleep. And I thought, well, you know, maybe they were sorry about that, but they were falling asleep because of sorrow. And um, I thought about that. In my own life, not, not that it would be any different for you in your life, you know, but uh, certainly been times in my life when I have felt sorrow in my life. And to such a degree, I would just, you know, we call it depression too as well, I guess. You just want to go and get in your bedroom and go to sleep and maybe never wake up. You know, you just, just sleep it away. Just, I, I don't want to live anymore in the day. I, I, let, let this day go and just go to sleep in it and Sorrow is very real. Um, it strikes us and it has a tremendous effect on it on us. And so the disciples were dealing with sorrow and they fell asleep because of the sorrow. I was thinking that perhaps, and I believe this to be the case, that it was what they just left. I, I think the sorrow was the result of what they just experienced. And what they just left was... A parting with Jesus. Um, Jesus had spent this evening with them, having a meal with them that he told them, I've longed for this, to have this with you. And Jesus began to foretell his death. He said that I'm going to be taken from you and the sheep are going to scatter. And then he said, one of you is going to betray me. And that certainly affected all of them because they began to inquire among themselves, well, who is it going to be? And then Jesus even says directly to Peter that you will deny that you ever knew me three times. And so I, I, I believe that the sorrow that they were dealing with, because they really loved Jesus, was this event that they had just been through that he's about to be taken from them. And that they're going to abandon him. They're going to scatter. They're, they're not going to be there for him. When crowds of people are crying out for the crucifixion, you will not hear one apostle. You will not hear their voice trying to stop the crowd. When Jesus is walking with his cross through the streets of Jerusalem, Peter will not be there. 
trying to help him. When he stumbles, when he falls, the cross weighs upon him. His flesh has been laid open by the Romans. Matthew won't be there. John won't be there. They'll have to pick some guy named Simon to come and bear the cross for Jesus because of the weight of it and the beating that he took. But not the disciples. They won't be there. So what Jesus prophesied about them was was true. And they would all forsake him. They would be scattered. And Peter would deny him. And, And perhaps in this garden that night, in a long day, in a long night, they're in this garden and they're full of sorrow. Because they understand that this is going to be a very grievous night. And they are going to be unfaithful to Jesus Christ. I would think that the sorrow that comes to them is the knowledge of unfaithfulness. That I'm going to fail him. I'm not going to be faithful to him. I'm not going to be there for him. He told me that I was going to deny him. How, How could he even think this about me? You ever had somebody like that in your life? Just ascribe to you before you ever did it that you're going to let them down. And and you just kind of look back at them and say, what did I ever do to make you think this about me? You know, that hurts. It hurts when somebody that you love or you trust or you're in a relationship with is telling you that, you know, I see through you. and, and, And I know that you're going to disappoint me. That's painful. I mean, let's try to put ourselves in their place and what they're dealing with in their life. And so they're going through this, this type of sorrow. And, and they did. They, they all collapsed that night. They all were scattered into the darkness of that night. Peter seems to have been observing things from a distance. John seems to have been in the crowd. He was certainly there at the, the foot of the cross during the crucifixion with Mary. And Jesus was able to identify John in the crowd. But nonetheless, they would all collapse. They would leave that event and go back to locked rooms. But the glorious part of the story is that Jesus did not fail to pray for them. And Jesus would come back for them. That was the hope of all of this sorrow. They fell asleep for sorrow. Jesus was full of sorrow and agony, but he didn't sleep. He prayed. He prayed and he sweat blood and the father sent angels to give him strength and to give him encouragement. So I want to ask you this this morning, just your own life, just to be honest with God, wherever you may be, whatever you might be going through. As we come to the end of this year, there's some things I want you to remember. There's some things I hope will stand out to you as you're just even driving around town. I ask you this question, are you a bad Christian? Are you a bad Christian? It's really quiet and nobody's raising a hand. I get it. But we probably all would think of ourselves as a bad Christian. We would probably all think of ourselves to some degree as an unfaithful servant. How do you serve a king so wonderful as this and feel like you're just the best one of all? How do you serve a king like this? How do you serve a kingdom like this and and ever feel like I've done enough? Paul said it like this. Who is sufficient for these things? What God has given us to do. Who's sufficient for it? How can I even say, Paul's even saying, how can I say that I have sufficiently served him? You know, and all to the glory of God, the Lord would work through his life. Being unfaithful as a Christian, being unfaithful as a servant of God. Is something that probably um, 
confirms in your heart and in your spirit what you think about yourself. I'm a loser. I've let God down. There have been times in my life when I've abandoned him and I haven't been faithful to him. There are things I've done in my family, things I've done in my life, my prayer life, my, my Bible study life, my church life, my giving life. Practically whatever part of my life you want to look at, I would probably say that I'm not the best Christian right there. And no doubt there's a desire in you to be one. And good news for you that this same Jesus that came to these failing disciples is coming to you. And this same Jesus who did not fail to pray for them, he's not failing to pray for you right now. And what he did for them, he will do for you. And they never, listen, these guys never came to a place in their life, even at the end of their life, where they're beating on their chest saying, man, what a man of God I was. What an incredible apostle I was my whole life. At the end of my life, I got it right. You don't see any of them doing that. It's just all to the glory of God and all of the praise to God. But I say this to you, if you're in a place right now where your Christianity um, is, in your opinion, not where it needs to be with Jesus, and you think you're a loser, you think you're a failure, there's so many people that are much better than you in Christianity, and all the ones you think that are better than you would probably say to you, I'm a terrible Christian. How does that make you feel? You know? If you even think you're below them. And so we judge ourselves with ourselves. We try to compare ourselves with ourselves. Maybe sometimes to make ourselves feel a little bit better. But I want to say instead of doing that fight. The fight of faith. Stay in the faith. Don't don't let the devil sideline you. Don't let the devil disqualify you. Because of the emotions and the feelings and sometimes even the truth of how your Christianity is falling below. Not only the standards of Jesus, but just the standards of Christianity as a whole. I want to read a couple of scriptures with you that I've shared with you before. But I want us to remember this about God. It's in Jeremiah 29 and the other is in Isaiah 55. In Jeremiah 29, 11, the Bible says this, God speaking, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord. I I believe the Lord wants you to find him. Um, I I used to love the game hide and seek. You know, I'd play that when we were kids. We've even played it in Ireland when I was old. And I just had a blast just, you know, playing this sometimes. But I remember when I was a little kid and I was at my grandmother's house and she lived there with my aunt and it was just the two of them together. And we would, it was a spooky old house out by LSU and it was old then. And I would go and stay over there and we would play hide and seek. And my aunt, you know, she would go and hide and I would go find her and you're searching around when you, and when when I was a little kid and didn't find them right away, I would begin to get nervous and begin to get scared. So 
they would always kind of hide like standing in the living room, you know, like, I see you, I found you, you know, I, I think that's the way God hides. I'm standing in the altar. I'm, I'm standing in your living room. I just, I just want you to stop turning your back to me and just turn around and face me and you will see me. And and I want you to cry out to me because if you will cry out to me, I will hear you. I I will. And and I really believe that that's the desire of God's heart is like a lot of times, like these disciples, when they failed God and they fell asleep for sorrow. And and here's Jesus and he's waking them up and he said, you guys, you need to pray because you need to pray that you don't enter into temptation. That's probably adding to their sorrow, right? Like, well, man, now I can't even stay awake and pray. And Jesus is telling me to pray and he's he's stained with blood and, and I can't even stay awake and pray with him. And I'm such a loser and I'm so awful. And what does Jesus ever want to do with me? And Peter's like, I'm going back to my boats. This is, you know, how could God ever use me? And so Jesus comes and he's on the shore while Peter's fishing and Jesus is cooking breakfast and Peter's busy with his boats, you know, and and here's Jesus like, I really want him to find me. You know, so, so Jesus wasn't like, I'm, I'm, I'm hiding in some grove somewhere in Jerusalem, Peter, and I'm going to write it in the sky. Come look for me. I hope you find me. No, but Jesus is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cook breakfast on the shore. I'm going to create this. I'm going I'm, I'm to have all this stuff smelling. And, and Peter's busy work. But John sees. And John sees it. Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter turns and he sees him. He finds God. A God who wants to be found. Praise God, a God who wants to be found. He wants you to find him. He's not hiding where you can't see. You just need to turn around. In your weakness, in your brokenness, in your failure, in your confession that I'm not a great Christian, join the club. I mean, honestly. God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace, thoughts of good, thoughts of a good. And he's talking to people who burn their babies on the altars of idols. He's talking to people who have rejected him as God. He's talking to people who have turned from his commandments and turned from his ways and have despised God. And they're living in Babylonian captivity. And they would probably think, this serves me right. This is what I deserve. Why wouldn't we deserve this? How could we ask God for anything good? Look what we did to God. And yet God says to them, I know what I'm thinking about you. And what I'm thinking about you is not what you think I would be thinking. What I'm thinking about you are thoughts of peace and good. That I want to bless you with. And when you get my thought. Then you're going to begin to pray. And you're going to begin to seek me. Because you're going to know that I'm not against you. He says something very similar in Isaiah 55. He says this in verse 6. He says seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the righteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. 
And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And there's something very important, and I say this to us this morning. There's something we have to do. We have to forsake our way. But we also have to forsake our thoughts because our thoughts, it's, it's, it's not the fact that we would understand or, or not understand that our ways are bad. I mean, some of us are in this room willing to admit in our heart that I'm not a good Christian. I haven't been faithful. I, I, haven't, I haven't followed God in, in all the things that I felt he stirred up in my spirit to follow him with. I'm not too pleased with myself. Okay. We, we might easily agree with that. But what's going to keep you from Jesus are your thoughts. Because you're going to think like a man. You're going to think like a human. You're going to think the way we think. And the way we think is with revenge and justice We think about what is right and what is wrong. We think about what is fair and what is unfair. But God is saying in Hebrews chapter 8, I am longing to establish a covenant with you where I can be merciful to your unrighteousness. I don't think like you. I don't think about justice for you. I, I don't want you to get justice. I don't want to give you what you deserve. My thoughts to you are good and they're kind. And I want to give you an expected ending. And and if you're ever to believe it, and, and beloved Christian, please listen to me this morning. If you're ever to believe it, you've got to turn from your thoughts. And you've got to believe that God is not against me. He is my salvation and he is my hope. And I have no hope at all in my life apart from him. I have no salvation in my life apart from him. All I can do is fish if Jesus doesn't come get me. All I can do is live in a locked room thinking that the Romans are getting us next and we're going to be killed. If Jesus doesn't somehow get these doors unlocked. And rescue us from our fearful despair. And that's the same with many of us. Unless Jesus does something for you. Unless Jesus unlocks your prison. Unless Jesus arrives with an answer to your sorrow. And for that to happen, he already has. He already, but it's our thoughts that keep us from him. Because you're trying to relate to God the way maybe you related to your earthly father. Or you're trying to relate to God the way you relate to some person in your life that's a mother, that's a father, that's a husband, that's a wife. And we, we respond to mistreatment with revenge and anger. And if you want to get my trust, you've got to earn it. And we, we try to earn our way back into the good graces of one another. And God says, no, not with me. You could never earn your way back into this good grace. 
It's good grace because I give it to you. I offer it to you. And this is what God does for us. God did not forget. If he didn't forget, how could we ever pray? If God didn't forget, how could we ever go before God and not imagine that all God sees is this wretched person that I am? You know what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Any of you that have been caught in sin, you imagine that the only thing the person who caught you in sin sees in you is your sin. And you find it so hard to ever get out of that. Because in your mind, that's all they ever see. But God is, God is telling us, not only will I be merciful to your unrighteousness, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember no more. I, I won't remember them. You will not come into my presence as this vile, wretched person. Because of the blood of my son. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. And God means it. But how hard is it for us to believe it? How hard is it for us to believe it? And do you think for a minute. That God's servants. Through the generations of history that, that God's servants were these perfect people? You think that God's servants were these noble leaders that didn't have flaws and imperfections in their life and histories that were absolutely awful histories? Rahab, she's probably not just your average prostitute. She's probably, you know, has a organization of prostitutes. She lives in the city wall. She has authority among the people. She has command over her family. But she recognizes as a prostitute and as a pagan that the God of Israel is the God. And something in me tells me that this God will be merciful to me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help his cause. I'm going to hide his spies. And I'm going to ask them, when, when God sends you into Jericho, be merciful to me. And, and I could only imagine as, as, the, as the Jewish leaders were telling her, hey, we're coming in. And this is what you need to do. Get into your house. And her house is in the wall. Get into your house. Everybody in your family, get into the house. Don't come out the house. Well, what fell? The wall. I don't know how it fell. I don't know the, dra the drama of it falling. It, we, we understand through some archaeologists that the wall was probably pushed into the ground. And I can only imagine as, as, as Rahab was there in the wall with her family and the rumbling around the wall is going on and the whole wall is collapsing or being pressed into the ground. I could only imagine maybe one of the sons, maybe one of the illegitimate children, maybe one of the other family members said, I'm sorry, this is too nerve wracking. The wall is coming down. I'm out of here. And she just says, stay in the house. And her house stood. Her house stood. She was put in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Moses was a murderer. 
a fugitive. Abraham was a pagan worshiper. And even in a relationship with God, he put his wife into another man's bed twice to save his own life. It's not a good man to me. David, David said, I had a loathsome disease. He stunk a venereal disease. He smelt so bad that people didn't even want to be around David. Solomon, over a thousand women that he had at his disposal. And yet somehow Solomon had to be born because God had ordained him to be in the lineages of the king of Jesus Jesus Christ. The people that God has chosen and the people that God works through are not these people that are necessarily noble and wonderful and perfect and so admirably looked upon with such gracious favor. But it was the people that were weak and broken and beggarly and God came and put his hand on them and God brought up a testimony through their life because they believed God could do something with me. Talk about losers and failures. You talk about people who didn't get it right. It was these people. Sometimes in our nobility of Christianity, we, we expect far more out of one another than, than God knows we're going to give him. And you know what disappointment is? It's believing in yourself. Coming to the realization you didn't do what you thought you would do. That's disappointment. Because you thought you could do better, but you can't do better. You can never live up to the things that God wants you to live up to. Prodigal son, you think he just had a, a, a momentary lapse of sin? The Bible says that when he went to his father and asked him for his inheritance, the father distributed to him the inheritance and it took him days to pack. And he's packing up all of his belongings for days in the father's house. Could only imagine the tension that's in the house. And then he leaves and he goes to a far country for the purpose of sinning. And when he goes into the far country, he, he's in that country for a long time. And he uses up all of his money on prostitutes and sinful living. Discredits his father's name. He's a long way off. And then after he sins, he starts looking for a job in a, in a nation that's going through a famine and not everybody's hiring. So he's going around looking for work and he finds the work to work with the pigs and feed the pigs. And he comes to himself and he goes home. This wasn't a momentary lapse. This was a strategic plan of rebellion, getting out from underneath my father Going into a life of sin, wasting everything I have on sin. And then at the end of the day, he gets back into his right mind. And I've heard people say this, you know, well, that was good for him. But what about those people that get caught? And, and maybe they would have never repented, you know, had they not gotten caught. Who are we to think like that? Do we think we have nothing? David got caught. David didn't come clean with his sin with Bathsheba until he got caught. 
And Nathan comes to him and says, you're the man. Praise God, David got caught. And it brought a real repentance in his life. Don't you judge somebody's repentance because they got caught. Just rejoice that they turned their hearts back to God and sought his face. Whatever that person is, whoever that person is, whatever that ministry may be, because they got caught. Well, thank God if they fall on their face to Jesus Christ and repent. Praise God for that. Who am I to judge that? Who are you to judge that? Some people repent because they get caught. Some people repent because they don't get caught by people. Praise God that they repent and they turn back to God. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother who sins against me? And um, he says, how, how about seven times? What did the Jews think? Three or four? And, and, and so Peter's going to be, you know, go the extra mile. So seven times, you think that would be good? Seven's the number of perfection. And Jesus says, no. But 70 times seven. And this is in the context of one day. Do you know what that tells me? You serve a God who is willing to forgive you 70 times 7. And there are some of you in this room that are so condemned in yourself because of your Christianity. That you have come to the conclusion. Your thoughts have told you. God is done with you. God is frustrated with you. God does not love you. God does not like you. God is is disgusted when you come up in his presence. And those thoughts are keeping you from God. When God is saying listen. If I told any human to forgive 70 times 7. It's because that's what I do. And I want to forgive you. All I ask you to do is cry to me. All I ask you to do is is turn to me. that's, That's all that I'm requiring or asking of you. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And so I want to give you this picture. I've shared this with you a number of times. I think I shared it at the Hill last year at Christmas. But it's probably been a while since I've shared it in the pulpit. So I'll say it to you this morning because I want you to see it and, and, and maybe it'll help you remember this message of God and how much he loves you. So a few Christmases ago, I was driving through town and I just began to see the advertisements all around town, the marquees on the, the billboards and everything like that of um, suggested Christmas gifts for the people that you love. Um, and a lot of suggested gifts is jewelry. And a lot of the ornaments that are in the jewelry are crosses. And one day I was just driving down Corsi. And there's a couple of jewelry stores on Corsi Boulevard. And they had these advertisements for a cross pendant, a necklace with a cross, a ring that was a cross, all types of things with crosses, some with a diamond in them, some just gold, some silver. And I just saw the cross and I thought, I was just thinking, isn't this strange? Nobody advertises an electric chair. 
nobody advertises a, uh, a hangman's noose. Nobody is putting on jewelry a, a meth pipe or track needles, but a cross. How strange is that? And I'm driving there with Corsi, and I'm just about to turn on Cedar Crest. And the Holy Spirit said, I would really believe he said this to me. It's because Jesus touched it. And he took the most gruesome symbol of death. The most atrocious symbol of death. And he made it beautiful. It was ugly in the Roman Empire. And it was the representation of a curse from God. But Jesus touched it. And when he touched it, he made it beautiful. And today the cross is beautiful all over the world because Jesus touched it. And beloved, I say that to you. The improvement of your Christianity is not you doing better. But it's letting Jesus touch you. It's, it's, it's turning from your thoughts and believing He wants to touch me. He will touch me. He will help me. I can go to God again for the umpteenth time and he'll forgive me. He knows my heart means it, though my flesh lusts. He knows in my spirit, in my heart, I really do want him and I want holiness and I want to walk with God And I want to be right with God. A couple of passages. I'm not going to turn to them. As we read in Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah called these people backsliders. Backsliders. And God sent Jeremiah to the nation of Israel with a message. Tell the backsliders. That I'm married to them. I'm still faithful to you. I'm still yours. You're still mine. If there's anybody in this room that feels that they're in that particular place with God. God says to you this morning, I'm married to you. Come home. And in the book of Hosea, God cries out to the people. And you remember the book of Hosea, it was. This whole message was illustrated by Hosea the prophet marrying a prostitute. Imagine that. Imagine a holy prophet going to find a wife in the district. Imagine the talking. Imagine the people, everything they said. But he found her. And her unfaithfulness to him was the pattern Of the picture that God wanted Israel to see that I'm Hosea and you're the woman he married Israel. You're you're constantly unfaithful to me, but I keep coming back to you and coming back to you and coming back to you. And what did Hosea's wife have to offer him? And what does Israel have to offer God? And God knows. So he says to Israel, he says this, take with you words and come to me. And. And perhaps you don't even, well, what do I say? 
I know what I'll say. I, I, will, I will go to God and I will make these incredible vows to God. No. Because you're not going to live up to them. So God told Hosea to tell Israel what to say. Take with you words and come back to the Lord and say, be merciful to me, God. Be merciful to me. And God was merciful. He was merciful to Israel. And if he was merciful to Israel because of the blood of lambs, how much more will your heavenly father be merciful to you because of the blood of the lamb? And help you and love you. And you don't have to live. I don't have to live so self-absorbed with myself and my performance. But I can rely on God's strength and God's power. Who can work through my life. And he can gain from my life any of the things that are pleasing to him. What did Peter have to go to Jesus with? All he had was words. It's all he had. What did the prodigal son go back to his father with? What did he take with him? Hey, dad, I made more money. No, he lost all the money. I managed to keep our reputation intact. No, he completely ruined the family reputation. He was, he was the cause of people blaspheming his good father. Have you ever done that? Your behavior? <clears throat> ever get anybody to question your Jesus? The prodigal son's lifestyle did that to his father. I, I've got nothing. But I have words. I'll go to my father and I'll say. Forgive me. Forgive me. I'm not worthy to be your son. But if you would take me on and let me work in the house. And in the middle of his speech. The father throws himself around his son and forgives him and reinstates him as a son and not as a servant. God will reinstate your joy. God will reinstate your hope, your happiness, your status, your place with him. You won't be second rate in the family of God because God has one good son. That's Jesus. And all of us are the same. And we're accepted through Jesus Christ. And then the improvement of our, our life is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. I want you to stand with me. I want to share this with you. <clears throat> I just read this hopefully to give you hope. It's called the sinner's friend. And. Just listen to this, please. Let it, let it help your faith because you've, you've got to turn from your thoughts. You don't fight by making vows. You fight by keeping your faith in Jesus. He came for the sick. Are you sick? Do you need help? If in his death he redeems us, then by his life he keeps us. While we were his enemies, while we were the murderers, while we were not good or worthy of salvation, while we were yet sinners, we were not thinking of changing or abandoning our sinful fun. 
to the full extent of what sinners are, that is when Jesus died for us. It was then, while we were sinners, that he expressed his love to us. It was then, when we were sinners, that he offered us hope. It was then that he defeated our death. It was then that he paid for our crimes. It was then that he destroyed our master Satan. It was then, while we were sinners, that he loved us. And if he loved us then... How much does he love us now? If he loved us in death, how much more does he love us in life? If he would go to the cross for us then, will he not go to the Father for us now? If he would not abandon us in the sinful state, then would he abandon us now as new creatures? If sin could not prevent his love then, Can it prevent his love now? If our disgusting heart could not turn away his love then, could it now? If as his very own enemies and murderers, he would desire to buy us to be his own, then consider how much he would want every one of us now. If when we were gross sinners, he died for us, then is there a gross sinner today he would not rescue and save? If when we hated him, he loved us, then now when we love him, would he hate us? If when we did not want him, he laid down his life, then now when we need him and we want him, would he forsake us? If he loved us as sinners, would he not love us as children? If he was so good to us as unbelievers, shall he not be much more to us as believers? I ask you with all of my heart, if we could just love on Jesus this morning. Just love on him. Just turn to him. To bring with us words. You haven't measured up to the type of Christian you wanted to be. Nobody in this room has. We're still being conformed to the image. And if you've fallen so many times that you think God is done with you and disgusted with you, abandon that thought. There's mercy for you. There's mercy for you. I just want you to love on it. I just want us to come and lift up a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving to God that he has looked upon me with such favor. And that he has not forsaken me. And my hope is not in myself. It is in him. Could we not just come and look for God who's standing out in the open? Say, thank you for not remembering. Thank you, God. Thank you for being merciful to my unrighteousness. Thank you, God. Thank you for giving me the hope, not that I could be a better Christian, but that you can sanctify my life. You can do that. And I do love you. I do love you, Jesus. Some of you need to say that this morning. You need to say it. You need to tell him you love him. 
Everything in the pattern of your life says you don't love it, but you need to tell him, I love you. You need to say it. You need to confess it. I love you. I turn my heart towards you. Celebrate you. Could you not draw near to him this morning? Could, could we just not take this moment to lavish him with our praise and with our love and with our gratitude?